with this notion of 2 Corinthians 3, but then we're going to get into a story that happened at the start of Holy Week and um, was indirectly connected to Palm Sunday. And so I, I just want to bring your attention to this passage in 2 Corinthians 3 when, when Paul is, is saying this to his people in Corinth. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? It's an interesting concept, but uh, at this time in history... Um, Things were not going very well in the world. It was problematic. People were selfish. They were lovers of themselves, kind of like today, but on a different level, I would say. But one of the things that was being tarnished was a person's, um, not just their own identity or their own spiritual life, but, but basically every aspect of a person's life. It got so ugly to the point, I don't know if I'm being clear here, but it got so ugly to the point where you couldn't just say to somebody, I'm so-and-so and I do this for a living or I'm from here and this is my family. They didn't trust you at all. People had lied so much, so frequently and so deeply and so, so realistically that they just couldn't trust anybody. And so almost to the man, everybody had to bring letters of recommendation for everything. If you were a pastor and you're looking for a church job, you had to give them letters of recommendation so that, cause they couldn't just take your word for it that you had been to this or that seminary or that you had been training under this or that Pharisee or, 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 or prophet. Um, and so you had to bring letters of recommendation and, and you couldn't just apply for a job and not have letters of recommendation. I mean, this sounds very common, doesn't it? But this is like over 2000 years ago in a time where you would think that people were very spiritually heightened. But it was ugly. Church members, if they wanted to apply for church membership, they, they pretty much had to present letters of recommendation from their previous churches because, because people just couldn't take your word for it that you've been baptized or that you were a Christ follower. A lot of deceivers, a lot of false teachers, a lot of craziness in the world. And so Paul is being caught up in this. In other words, it seems like he is being asked for his own credentials. And all through 2 Corinthians, he's having to defend himself and the things he said and the things that he believes. And so he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? This is a real problem, but this is how he resolves it. In verse 2, you yourselves are the letters that we've written. You are our letters of recommendation, written upon our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So this is what we really are up against at this point. Paul is basically saying, okay, you don't trust me. You don't believe who I am. You don't believe my motivations or the reasons I did the things I did or, or the accomplishments that I have or the people that have come into the faith. Then fine, just look upon their hearts. Just look at the people that our ministry has affected. And that is our letter of recommendation. Those who were once alcoholics and now are clean. Those who are, who are struggling in divorce and now their marriages have been restored. Those who have, uh, were just crazy people and now they're spiritually crazy people. 
I'm sorry, that was supposed to be a joke. But, but anyway, he's like, look upon the people and the changes that they have made. How many, pe- how many people have been baptized by a particular ministry into the faith? How many, how many people are now in ministry, starting their own churches and doing their own ministries and mission work? Look upon them, and that is the letter of our recommendation. So it kind of goes along with, I think it was Francis of Assisi who said something to this degree, that you may be the only book of Jesus that some people ever read. You may be the only letter from Christ that some people ever get to observe. And so the challenge is is for us to recognize that we are the letters of Christ. We are the books that Jesus has written. And some people in this world are going to take that book and they're going to cherish it as they read through it. And they're going to find Christ as they, they read about our story and about our lives. Isn't that crazy? But that's what he's saying here is that by people, and people are looking, they, want, they, they don't want to read this book because this is intimidating. So they're going to read your life first to see if there's true evidence that there's a Christ who has the ability to save and to heal and to change and to restore. And so that comes with it some implications. It makes uh, some people uncomfortable. Because if your life is a book of Jesus, then there's, there's certain things that you probably don't want people to read about. There's probably some stories or some chapters that, that don't paint you in a positive light. And the temptation for you would be to eliminate or edit those chapters to either fine-tune it or to just rip it out completely and skip to the next chapter. Because we all have a lot of stuff we're not proud of, stuff that makes Jesus look bad, things that make us look bad. And, and, if, and truly, if, if, you, if we knew people were going to read our book, we would want to eliminate some of those stories, some of those events. But... But here's the, the, the ramification of that. The problem with that is that the whole Bible, which is God's testament, his letter, his holy writ, this, this whole book of the Bible is God's story. And it is filled with stories of brokenness and bad decisions and foolishness and wickedness. And somehow, God still includes those parts of the story. He includes those chapters into his book. Why in the world would he want to do that? You know, I I think for me personally, a couple of the stories that are the most incredible, Moses, of course, guilty of murder, killed an Egyptian guard because he was mistreating the Jews. King David had an affair with Bathsheba, then had her husband, Uriah the Hittite, murdered on the front lines and tried to cover up her pregnancy, you've got just story after story of craziness. Craziness. Surely God thought a couple times and thought, maybe I should exclude this story. Maybe I should eliminate this one right here, and we'll just pass it on uh, to some other generation. But no, he included those stories. Why did he do that? Because he wants to illustrate to us that he is not just a God of the good. He's not just a God of the peaks and and the high points of our life. When we get our awards, our recommendations, when we get our pats on the back. You know, last night it was was cool because we got to go to the military ball. 
with Command Sergeant Major Greg Jones and Lisa as our guest. Uh, we were their guest. They were our, our, our inspiration. But it was just cool sitting there with 250 military people and their, and their spouses and, and seeing uh, people get awards for things that they've accomplished, things they've done for our country and are getting recognized for. It was absolutely cool stuff. Stuff like that should certainly be in our storybooks. Things that we've, we've achieved should certainly be there. But he's not just a God of those good moments, of those, those glorious things. He's a God of the ugly stuff, too. And, and this is what I've discovered, and I don't know if you have, but usually, okay, 100% of the time, I have found God and discovered new levels of God when I was at the bottom, when I was in those valleys and things were falling apart and things were at their ugliest, that's when he came alongside of me and showed me sides of himself that I've never known before. I would think that he's probably done the same for you. And so because of that, the world, who's also going to go through those valleys, they need to see that there's a God out there who will help them in those times of lowness, in those times of, uh, of just ugliness. The other thing that that stands out to me in this is my book was not written by me. It was written about me. My Holy Father is the one who writes the book. He's the one who includes the stories. He's the one who, who reveals himself in the midst of all of the stuff I've been through. In other words, this book is not my book. It's his book of redemption. And your story is not your story. It's God's story of redemption in you. And the world needs to know that we're real people. We're not better than them. We're not holier than them. We're just like them. The only difference is that we have a God who's come into that ugliness and has made it, made it look good again. He's brought attractiveness back to it. And so... That reminds me of a story, and I want you to turn to, if you would, to John chapter 12. This is just an example uh, of what, what I think this is talking about. In, in John chapter 12, I was going to have Noah read this one too, but I thought I'd save it as a surprise for you. Keep you on your toes. The story goes like this in John 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of nard, pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used it to help himself to whatever was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, now this is important stuff. Pay attention to this. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found that Jesus was there and they came. 
not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So this whole concept of our books, our lives are a book written by God for the sake of others to read. We are letters with, with Christ having authored the letter of, of recommendation. We look at this particular story, and I, and I think we're supposed to look at the different characters who are involved in the story, just to see how Christ was shining through them, how their faith was being evident and manifest through them for the sake of others. And, and so we have to know that there was the normal people there in the story. We, we have to assume that all the dis- disciples were there. If Judas was there, then probably all of them were there, because he was the least of the 12, is what we talked about last week, Right? And just as a reminder, two weeks ago, we talked about the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Now, understand, two weeks ago, I had no idea that these three were going to fit in together like this. It's all God stuff here. But, but Lazarus, uh, we'll get to him in a minute. We know that this is at the home of, uh, of where Mary and Martha are. But we don't necessarily know that this is their home. If you read the account in Matthew 19 and, and Mark 13, uh, what you'll find is, is that they are very adamant that this is the home of Simon the leper. So it could be, it, it almost implies that Mary and Martha's home, because they wanted to have this banquet to honor Jesus, that their home was too small. And so they, they asked Simon the leper if we could host the dinner at your home. And he welcomed them to his house. And again, this is the start of Holy Week. So there's a, a, a lot of people in town. We know that Martha was the, the hard worker. It says here that Martha served the dinner. It would have been very something just to stand back and watch her do her thing. Kind of like watching the ladies of this church, you know, getting ready for a potluck or, or, or getting ready for an Easter egg hunt or something. I mean, just craziness, the amount of work, like, like a bunch of little bees just walking around, you know. Um, Martha was hard at work, but she was doing what Martha does. She's part of the story. See, the reason Martha does the things she does is because she wants to, to honor Jesus for what he's done. She works hard because that's not just the way she was raised. That's because she finds joy in this. She finds fulfillment in this. And especially when honoring Jesus, the one who raised her brother from the dead, I'm going to do my absolute best. I'm going to put together my best meal. It's going to be fresh. It's going to be awesome. And it's going to make your toes curl. It's going to, make, it's going to be so good, it's going to make you want to slap your mama. You know, you've had meals like that, right? Mm, if I had meals like that. Mm. All right, I'm digressing. Then you have Mary, the sister of Martha, the younger one, who, who we, we heard in, the, in previous stories as the one who just sat by Jesus' feet, just contempt, being contemplative of who he is and the things he says, you know, holding on to every word he speaks and treasuring them in her heart. This is a woman that, that it has love in her, and, and she is filled with grace. And here she takes her pint of nard, and she which is expensive, 300 denarii, which is a year's wage, they estimate. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. Humility, love just shining through her for the sake of her master, right? Mary is truly incredible. And then, of course, there's, there's Judas Iscariot. We talked about Judas last week. Here, John, and remember, he wrote this in hindsight. This is after the fact. He goes and he puts this into the text that Judas was a thief, and he constantly helped himself to the money bag. 
We talked about that last week. Why in the world would Jesus pick a man to be a disciple when he knew at the time that he was a non-believer and that he would never believe and that he would eventually betray him? Jesus still picked him to fulfill scriptures, but also to show that I put hope in anybody and I will give anybody a chance. But this Judas was standing off to the side. It's interesting when you read through the four Gospels, very seldom do you find Judas saying anything. This is one of the few exceptions. And in this case, he's really showing his true colors when he says, oh, we could have sold this and given it to the poor. But John includes, but he really didn't care about the poor. This was all about him. This is his character. This is, this is Christ shining through him, right? No. You see, one of the things, I was going to mention this last week, and I didn't because I didn't realize at the time we were going to need to have another opportunity, but I saved it. And, and, and the thing is this, Judas sold himself as a godly person. He was a chameleon of sorts. He, he, he followed Jesus everywhere he went. He was with the disciples. He was involved in their conversations, we would assume. He was, he was always in their presence but yet never believing. But nobody would have known that at the time. Judas was a corrupt person before Jesus called him to be a disciple. He, he remained a corrupt person during the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, but he squelched it. He hid it and, and camouflaged it so nobody would know his true colors. People would come into his life during that three and a half year period and they would say, oh, Judas, man, you are a different person. You are so unique, man. You are so changed. It's so cool seeing this new you, not realizing that he just was wearing a mask. You see, after after all of this played out and it got to the Last Supper, Judas revealed his true nature, his, his true colors. And Jesus said, Judas, do what you have to do, but do it quickly. Some would say, how is it possible that this godly man fell so quickly? But others would say, but you don't understand. He was never changed. He looked like it. He said the right things, did the right things, but he was corrupt all along. The scriptures give testimony to that. Putting him aside, Jesus then focuses on the girl, Mary, leave her alone. It was intended for her that she would use this perfume to prepare me for my burial. He says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So, so this is where we get into the nitty gritty in, in verse 9. It says, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, but they didn't just come for Jesus. They came also to see Lazarus. It says twice in the very beginning of the chapter and then verse 10 here or verse 11 that he has been raised from the dead. Lazarus was sitting at the table reclining with the other men, never spoke a word, never ever said a word. But people were coming from all over to see him. They just wanted to put their eyes on a miracle in their presence. They just wanted to look and say, yep, that's him. Can you believe it? That's the man. He died. He's been raised from the dead. And there he is sitting there at the tent or eating dinner right now. They just had to see that. 
Lazarus was quite a person, but he didn't do anything. He never said anything, but he was a very incredible person. You see, one of the things we learn is, is that um, sometimes the best sermon you'll ever hear doesn't contain words. Lazarus didn't need to preach a sermon. He was the sermon. Just seeing him sitting at the table, he didn't have to say a single word. All he had to do was just sit at the table and keep smiling. Can't imagine how powerful that sermon was. I mean, I, I, I think about that. I think that, you know, it would be cool if, uh, let's say, one day you all go home after church and you start making calls saying, I just heard the most incredible sermon ever. And people said, what was it about? You're like, I don't know. Well, what did he say? Nothing. Well, how long was it? 40, 50 minutes? And he never said a word? Nope, not a word. But it was the best sermon I ever saw. The best one I ever heard. Isn't that awesome? God can do that in people. And, and so, I, you know, I, I don't want to name names or anything, but I, I think it's cool that when I think about some of you all, some of you all shouldn't be here. Some of you have been close to meeting your maker. I mean, really, if you, when you see Don Vicroy, you have to know he's a sermon, and he doesn't have to preach because he shouldn't be here. He should have been gone a long time ago. But yet he's still speaking to us and he's still interacting with us and he's, you know, leading us. Bob Gibson maybe shouldn't be here. But he is. You're right. There. I see you every week. He is a story. He is a book. And Jesus has written upon his heart incredible things. There's so many more of you here. I can't mention all of them. But you are, you are a book, and people are reading you, seeing if they can find Christ in that book. It's crazy stuff. But, but check this out. Remember, we're back in verse 9. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and only beca- not only because of them, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But listen to this very condemning story. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Lazarus did nothing. He never did anything to anybody. He never said a word. But yet the the religious people wanted to kill him anyway because of the book that God had written upon his heart. That's crazy talk right there. But Jesus said, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you also. Because of my name, they will hate you. And we find in the very next verse, verse 11, why it is that they wanted to kill him dead. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. I'm wondering, is the devil trying to kill anybody anybody here? Is he after any of you? Is he want any of you dead as a doornail? Because of what Christ has done in you or for you or through you or because the name of Jesus is upon you, any of that, does the devil want you dead? The scriptures say he does. John 10.10, 10, 
He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his agenda. He hates you because of Christ's name upon you. This is just crazy stuff. So I wonder, not that we're going to spend a lot of time dealing on this or or digging into it. I wonder that when people read your letter or they read your book, do they see Christ? Or do they see a person who's just trying to, to sell a bag of goods that they're good people? When people read your book, are they going to be privy to the brokenness that you've been experiencing or the problems that you have have found yourself in the midst of? Are they going to learn about the redemption of Christ in you, that he redeems even the most defiled person and the most broken of people? Or are they just going to see a person who really has survived by their own strength throughout this life? Are they going to see any miracles in your life? Are they, are they going to read about anything that just was a dead end and all of a sudden God showed up and he did something amazing in you? Are they going to, are they going to sense that your story is a love story or, or a violent book, a violent story like Gladiator or something? Or are they going to get encouraged by reading your book? Or or are they going to get discouraged and end up in a psychiatrist's care? When when they read your book, is it going to make them want to be closer to Jesus or further away? You see, this, this whole story took place right at the beginning of the triumphal entry. It says the very next day, the great crowd had come for the the feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches, and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. And and, and then that whole story took place. Uh, I I keep getting fixated on this when when it says that um, he was seated seated upon the colt. It must have been Matthew's version of it that said that he broke down in tears. He broke down in tears because the people missed it. They didn't recognize who he really was. They didn't really recognize why he was there. They were putting their agenda upon him and hoping that he would fulfill their agenda, not realizing that he was there to have relationship with them. And so I just just go back to this and I say, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So I'm supposed to encourage you. God's making sure I don't leave it on a down note. I have to encourage you with this. Your book is not finished. There are still adequate amounts of chapters to be written. So what you do from this day forward could be the best part of your life story. I encourage you to let Christ become the centerpiece of that life story. Don't be afraid to let his light shine through your ugliness and your brokenness. Don't be afraid to to tell others your story or to let them read it upon your heart. But uh, that's what witnessing is all about. Let's pray. Father, we love you, we thank you, we come to you and pray for your grace to fall upon us.
that you will convict us of our shortcomings, Lord, but remind us of our redemption. Convict us of our weakness, but Lord, show us about your strength. Teach us about that strength. Remind us, Lord, that our stories are not, are not over yet. We still can add. We can still change. We can still add the good stuff. Father, help us to be committed to living a life that honors and glorifies your name. For you are the reason we breathe. Thank you for our hardships. Thank you for our pain. Let your light shine through it to give hope to those who are suffering. In Christ we pray. Amen. We'll stand and sing our closing. In Christ alone, my hope is.